Hey there. Welcome to the Football Outsiders live stream for Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. I am Aaron Schatz, Editor-in-Chief of Football Outsiders. We're going to do another Football Outsiders Almanac 2022 preview show today. And today we're going to be discussing the AFC East with Scott Spratt and Cale Clinton, who wrote our AFC East chapters for this year's book, Reminder, if you are watching us right now on YouTube or on Twitch, please make comments and ask questions in the discussion thread. We love to hear from you. If you are listening after the fact on the Football Outsiders Podcast Network, you should come watch live at 1 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays and Thursdays so that you can ask questions live. What do you really think of this player? Well, you can ask us and then we will answer. Um, don't forget to buy the Almanac if you haven't bought it yet. If you don't have a subscription to FO+, this is the perfect time to get a subscription to FO+. It's 20% off for new subscribers through the end of July. You get the downloadable copy of Football Outsiders Almanac. You get all the picks against the spread during the season. You get the Kubiak Fantasy Football Tool for your fantasy football drafts and all of the weekly projections during the year, plus all of our fantasy statistical tools to help you Pick your team every week, whether you're in a regular redraft league or a legacy league, dynasty, whether you're in DFS, our tools are really useful for all of that stuff. So if you don't have FO Plus, this is the time you want to get an FO Plus subscription. Go to footballoutsiders.com slash subscribe. So we have the question of the day that we're doing on these shows. And I believe that the, the question of the day for... The Miami Dolphins is, will the Miami Dolphins schedule end Tua Tagovailoa's career as an NFL starting quarterback? Because one of the things that stands out about the Miami Dolphins is that they have, by our numbers, the second hardest projected schedule in the league. And I believe that if Deshaun Watson is suspended for half the season or less, it becomes the hardest schedule in the league. Well, Aaron, yeah, I had that Watson piece in mind, and I was going through the schedule, and was like, I don't know, this doesn't look that hard. But then I got to week 13, and here's what they face. At San Francisco, at the Chargers, at the Bills, that's three straight road games, then versus Green Bay and, and at New England in there in week 17, one week before the end of the season. So I'm like, ugh. Like, I know we don't have all of those teams projected to be in the top 10 and overall DVOA, but we have them all in the upper half of teams. And with four of those five being on the road, I'm kind of like, do the Dolphins need to start nine and two to have a realistic chance at the playoffs? It's that's a pretty scary situation right there. Yeah, the Dolphins schedule is hard. All the AFC East schedules come out hard because they play the NFC North and our, you know, our projections are, uh, irrationally in love with the Minnesota Vikings and think the Detroit Lions are better than people expect and the Green Bay Packers are still the Packers. And they play the AFC North where Baltimore is going to bounce back and Cincinnati won the AFC last year and Pittsburgh should still have a good defense and Cleveland, we're all waiting to see. So um, all the AFC East teams play tough schedules, but Miami has the hardest schedule in the division. So I'm not sure that's going to actually end Tonga Vailoa's career, though, because I think there's a subtle difference here where I think quarterbacks are judged by their wins and losses in the playoffs, but more by their statistics in the regular season. And it's kind of funny because we were getting into the schedule with this for the major criticism for, for Tonga Vailoa, which is that 
yeah, he's 13 and eight as a starter in his career. But last year he was winning all these games when facing Joe Flacco and PJ Walker and, and Ian book quite famously. And down the stretch during that winning streak, the only loss he suffered was to the only real quarterback he faced in Ryan Tannehill. But I think it's a little bit different where I think if he actually has passing efficiency against some of these teams that I think that'll encourage that maybe his career could be on track, even if the Dolphins fall short of the playoffs. I guess the major question will be like, is that going to be enough for the Dolphins owner who seems to have kind of chased stars a little bit in his career? I don't know. What do you guys think? I think there's a chance that, you know, the Mike McDaniel system is really going to help maybe not alleviate some of the concerns, but at least shroud some of the, you know, problems that Tua's had. I mean, Mike McDaniel's offense helped Jimmy Garoppolo be the number one quarterback in yards after the catch in 2021. And now Tua Tungavailoa is throwing to Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill. And even guys like Chase Edmonds and Raheem Mostert are going to be, you know, beneficial in helping that process, even if they aren't, you know, the biggest names, just the speed that they have and the pass catching ability that both those running backs have just, I, it might, it might inflate the stats a little bit enough to maybe think that two is still a legitimate quarterback. If you don't start to look at efficiency numbers or you just focus on the volume or, you know, focus on how those, you know, passing yards came to be, you just focus on the numbers themselves. It's, he'll have all the tools in place at least to, uh, you know, help him along the way. It just comes to a matter of how you look at it. The interesting guy there might be Mike Gusecki because in uh, Brian Knowles' recent article about yak over expectation, he pointed out Gusecki was near the bottom of the league uh-huh. in yards after the catch compared to expectation. So it, him playing in the Mike McDaniel offense is a great example of the um, the the irresistible force against the immovable <laughs> object. Like which which wins like Gasecki's lack of yak or McDaniel's offense and all the yak that all the players get in it. My guess is yeah. that the offensive scheme will win. I've gone back and forth on this because like Gasecki is legitimately really fast. He was a 95th percentile uh, combine 40 time guy, but he actually when he had his best season in 2020 when Fitzpatrick was throwing him the ball, he led all tight ends in average depth of target. So it's like, is this a downfield? field stretching guy and that's not really what the 49ers did with McDaniel there as OC they really stretched the field more horizontally and look for that yak so I'm like he doesn't really fit the the kind of do it all uh mold of a tight end that you might prefer to have there so I don't know can they find ways to kind of spread him out wide and get him in the mix like he's fast so he fits in that way but I feel like it could go either way I will point out our projections for the Miami Dolphins first of all we have them with 8.2 average mean wins, so just a little bit below 500 as the average. They make the playoffs 37% of the time. Uh, DVOA projections wide, uh, wise, we do see the offense improving. So their offensive projection is 12. It's their defensive projection that's 27. And then the schedule is second. So I think offensive-wise, we do expect that the Mike McDaniel offense plus Tyreek Hill is going to bring some improvement to this offense. And I think, you know, just Tyreek Hill alone, adding someone like that. Now, I mean, I will say that, you know, research I've done in the past shows you lose more by losing a top wide receiver than you gain by adding a top wide receiver. But I still think adding Tyreek Hill is a very nice thing to, to have. I'm kind of on Kale's mind where it's it's not just the quality of the player, it's the fit. 
And it does seem like all of the moves, not just the, the big splashes with Tyreek Hill and Teron Armstead, they all kind of fit the offensive philosophy. We assume that McDaniel's going to bring to the team coming from a Kyle Shanahan wide zone offense where speed and yak is sort of the king. And Tyreek Hill has had a top 10 play in terms of average or in terms of top speed, according to the next gen stats in the last two years. So is Jalen Waddell. Chase Edmonds led running backs with 100 or more carries with plays that went 15 or more miles per hour last season. So it's like all this speed can help them stretch the field horizontally. And while we think of that sort of as being a run thing, and that's going to be the run plays and the jet sweeps and stuff, that's where the space comes from in the passing game. So like Tonga Valoa may not need to do anything. Like he can just continue to get rid of the ball quickly and throw accurate short passes like he did last year. But suddenly those similarities could lead to the overall success Garoppolo had where he averaged like, more than two yards extra after the catch versus Tongo Vailoa last year. So it's just that could be such a huge difference just coming from the scheme and coming from players that really fit in that scheme nicely compared to what he saw last season. I mean, it's it's led San Francisco enough to kind of still hold on to him. It's not enough for people to keep biting, but it's I don't know. I'm very intrigued with how things are gonna shake out for Tua this year, just because if only because the you know, just how conservative he's also played through a lot of portions of his career. I do wonder if just the additional protection, the additional weapons that he's got at his disposal, an offensive mind like Mike McDaniel, I wonder if it's enough to at least see just at least some more flash out of Tua. And if that's going to be enough to turn any sort of tide on his, you know, public opinion on Tua Tungabailoa. But yeah. Aaron, let me ask this. How much of Tonga Vailoa's conservative play do you think is about his ability versus what was a strategic choice by the Dolphins last year? Because the Dolphins had the worst pass block win rate in the league. They had very poor pass blocking offensive linemen. And when Tonga Vailoa threw downfield, which wasn't often, I think he had the second lowest rate of deep attempts, but he completed 50% of his deep passes last year, thrown 20 plus air yards. That was the best among the regular quarterbacks, small sample, man coverages, blah, 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 blah. It's all there. But like, he might actually not be the worst deep passer. Like, why did the Dolphins do what they did? I mean, I think the offensive line has a lot to do with it. And one part of what they did this offseason was they really improved the offensive line by bringing in Teron Armstead to play left tackle and Connor Williams to play center. And that uh, Armstead knocks uh, Eichenberg to left guard and puts some um, uh, Probably Austin Jackson, Jackson at right tackle, tackle, I guess. Right, unless they go with... You could um, put Hunt there. I don't know, but Hunt was really right, good at right guard last like year. Various guard, various guys in various places, but it knocks guys to easier roles and adds two good offensive... Li- one really good offensive mm-hmm. lineman and one good offensive lineman. But I have a feeling that the, the scheme was partly based on the troubles that the offensive line had that being said, all the scouting people, when they watch Tua Tagovailoa, say the arm strength is just not there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's tough. With the offensive line piece, I feel like the Armstead piece in particular should really work for the running game. He still owns the combine record for the fastest 40 time for an offensive tackle. Like, he should be really good at pulling, really good at kind of setting an edge on some of those wide zone plays. But I keep coming back to the fact that the Tonga Vailoa is left-handed and like the right tackle is the blind spot there. And that's the the key weakness on the offensive line. Like if you're a team with one dominant pass rusher, don't you just always put them on that side of the field and just and try to get around the edge that way? Like I'm wondering if that's going to be the thing that blows it up unless someone like 
maybe Eichenberg or, or Austin Jackson can really take a step forward. I'm not sure playing right tackle is going to be any easier for them if they're always facing the best pass rusher over there. There's also just some quiet, like, I've got some concerns just about how much shuffling is going on along the offensive line as well. I mean, Connor Williams going from guard to center isn't that big a leap, but Liam Eikenberg going from after was he leading the league in blown blocks last year at 40, going from tackle to guard, that should alleviate some headache. Austin Jackson moving over to tackle. There's just a lot of, you know, shuffling along this line that, you know, Tron Armstead being an anchor of a left tackle, like you said, especially with the fact that, you know, the right tackle is blind side for two and not the left tackle side. It's I, I, I wonder how much of an improvement it, it's definitely going to make some kind of leap just because of the talent alone of Toronto Armstead. But I wonder how big a leap this offensive line can really take with just a lot of shuffling. And like you said, some of the mismatches on this line. I do think about what Jeff Schwartz says, which is that he thinks going from left to right or right to left is harder than people in the NFL seem to give it credit for. That it's not as easy as just, oh, did you play on the left? Here, play on the right. Okay, you're good. Like, it takes practice. I mean, they've got all of the preseason to practice it, but it takes practice. Yeah, and it's especially tough to convert, you know, veterans at the position as well. It's easier to start with a guy that's younger, but a guy that's built up sort of muscle memory in the same routine of one side of the line now has to basically just mirror that. It's a lot tougher. I think Miami fans might be surprised to see that our defensive projection is low for them. Uh, I believe they had an above average defense last year, but there's a couple things going on here. Some of it is sort of regression to prior performance. Some of it is that they were particularly high in takeaways and in success in short yardage, which are things that tend to regress to the mean. And some of it is that their overall defensive performance last year was really skewed by one game against Ian Book. Because Ian Book played with like all, like New Orleans had a bunch of third and fourth stringers out there because of COVID, and he had no idea what he was doing, and he was horrendous. And in the opponent adjustments, that game is not, you know, adjusted for book it's adjusted for new orleans and so miami's defense ended up looking better than it than it really was yeah i think you're the one that told me this aaron but they finished 10th in defensive dvoa for the season but would have finished 17th if you removed that one game so they might have been average last year they just got a really really lucky break with that ian book game uh, bill houston says we should retire the acronym alex for when you throw the ball compared to the sticks on third down for tua thrown under under nfl average i feel like alex smith is always the king he will always be the king <laughs> throwing short of the stakes he, he's the winner and still champion mm. um there's good players on this defense you know Xavier howard and emmanuel ogba has been surprisingly good i think people don't realize how good he's been in the last couple of years and christian wilkins the defensive tackle and there's young guys like Jalen Phillips who are kind of coming up and Javon Holland, the safety. On the other hand, Byron Jones has has never been what he was in Dallas mm. since he came to Miami. He's like definitely been a problem. And, um, you know, Andrew Van Ginkle is he's a, you know, reasonable piece, but I don't think he's anybody's idea of a star edge rusher. And um, so, you know, the overall pieces may not 
you know, our, our projection seems a little low for Miami, but I don't know if the pieces are equal to the sum of their parts. It is interesting to me that they had some extreme tendencies last season, and I'm curious what's going to happen with losing Brian Flores but maintaining all of his defensive coaching staff and just kind of bumping everybody up a level because they were, I think they were second highest in overall blitz rate. They were highest in defensive back blitz rate, kind of an unusual tendency that maybe fits their personnel pretty well. High in man coverage, another thing where if I guess if you have a lot of good coverage safeties and cornerbacks, it makes sense. Like, will the continuity help? Or is this more of a weird shell game for a team that maybe wants to, to get Sean Payton in there next year and start this thing over? How many of these shows are we going to do where we say a team that <laughs> wants to get Sean Payton in there next year and start over? At least three based on the most recent rumors that I've heard. Definitely the Cowboys and Dolphins for sure. Yeah. Panthers also, I think. Well, I'm sure they would love to have Sean Payton. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think also one other guy I want to mention, just because when we talk about draft busts, he doesn't get mentioned a lot, but Noah Igbenogini has never really done anything. Yeah, that was the same first round, I think, when they took Jackson, too. That was like a really like – they, they stockpiled all those picks, and they just really didn't work out high in the draft there. He's kind of been the Nikhil Harry of cornerbacks. And, I mean, that doesn't even mention Tua, who – while I think it's fair to be optimistic about, obviously they'll be regretting that choice over Herbert for the rest of their careers. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the time Cubase had Herbert higher, but based on scouts or whatever, I didn't really think it was a bad choice. Like, I don't feel like, but you know, I mean, what happens is you, you, you roll the dice and uh, you know, if you have two, two dice with the same things on them, sometimes one guy rolls a six and the other guy rolls a one and, and, I mean, I don't think Miami rolled a one, but the Chargers definitely rolled a six. That's, that's the thing. I almost feel like if Herbert didn't go there, I don't think Tua would, would have this public, you know, just like disappointing kind of feeling to him. His passing DVOA rates so far in his career are kind of fine. Like negative 8.5% as a rookie, negative 0.7% last year, basically mm -hmm. right at league average. Great. It's a gimmicky offense, whatever. Those are kind of the career starts that Joe Burrow had, that Kyler Murray had, that Andrew Luck had. Like, that's a very normal start to a career for a good quarterback. But Herbert is just incredible and in particular has the deep arm strength that Tua, that's like the one obvious deficiency there. And I just, that really sets up the, the contrast that I think people kind of read into. And that's why they're so pessimistic for him in the first place. It'll be really interesting to see how people react to how he does in this offense because will, will they – if he plays well, will they just give all the credit to the scheme? Or will they at least say, hey, he's at least as good as Garoppolo? Um, or will we feel like if he can make some deep throws, will we feel like he's better? Um, I mean, I don't, we don't have them going to the play. We don't have them as one of the top seven teams in the AFC, but I would not be surprised if Miami made the playoffs. No, I think I could certainly make a leap. I'm really excited about the young guys like Damian Howard. I think I had touted uh, when I wrote up the AFC East for the uh, weakest position still remaining, I had tapped their safety position. But I am still really excited on Javon Holland. Uh, you know, really solid rookie season last year. Just beyond there, though, like like you had mentioned, Byron Jones, like big letdown, Noah Benagne. Another like draft bust and Nikhil Harry of cornerbacks, as you said, there, especially in Javon Holland's absence, the safety position was just really weak. It's 
this defense is really contingent, it seems to me, at least on a few core pieces, and they don't have a ton of the depth. I do think that is where some of the familiarity with keeping the same system in-house will help. I think at the very least they can try and scrape together something similar to last year with very similar personnel. I also mind the addition of Melvin Ingram. He's probably, you know, he's a shell of his former self at this point. Shell's maybe a bit of a stretch, but, you know, definitely could be more of a rotational guy, it seems. But I do still useful like the addition. Very least. Yeah, definitely useful I also feel addition. like the Dolphins, with their defensive back blitzing, it's like reminiscent to me of the, of the Spagnuolo Chiefs, where, like, the scheme is almost designed to create opportunities for turnovers. And so while we always think of those as being something that are going to kind of regress back toward the league average every year, I wouldn't be shocked if over the long term, like this type of Dolphins defensive scheme would lead to more turnovers. Like they would be on the list of teams where I'm like, yeah, I kind of expect them to be in the top 10 in defensive turnover rate. I mean, exhibit A, Xavier Howard, like yeah. led the league in interceptions for how long now outside the, of uh, last year? The trouble is like the thing about secondary is that it's a weak link system where mm-hmm. when you have one weak link, the other team can just go after that weak link. So if you're the offense, you can avoid Zivian Howard if you want to and throw at Byron Jones, throw at Nick Needham, throw at Igbenehene uh, <laughs> if he's on the field. Um, so, yeah, it's better. Sometimes it's better to have two good cornerbacks than one great cornerback and one below average cornerback. Like what will kind of maybe paper over that a bit, though, is the, the I would say, ascending pass rush. Like you mentioned this with Emmanuel Ogba. I'm not really sure why he doesn't get the credit. I guess the sack totals never quite get high enough, but he's kind of a sneaky perennial top 10 hurries type of guy. Yeah. And if Jalen Phillips, who I think if Micah Parsons hadn't been there and like who is like a once every five year type of defensive prospect, people would have been going crazy for how well Phillips played last year. I think he had like eight and a half sacks and basically half a season as a starter. Like this could suddenly be a very, very good pass rush, which really like especially with the defensive black blitzing, I think could probably turn this defense around a little bit, even if there are a couple of holes out there. All right. That's the Miami dolphins. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to the show. If you're watching now, like, and subscribe to the show. Cause we're doing these Tuesdays and Thursdays, but uh, a couple of them are going to be Wednesdays. So if you want to know when we're moving things around, you want to subscribe to the show. Please come and ask us questions on Twitch and YouTube when we're live at 1 o'clock Eastern, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Let's talk about our Super Bowl favorites, ladies and gentlemen. We are in the AFC East, and that means they're not used to being in this position. That means the New England Patriots. No way. That's not it. That's Thursday. The Buffalo Bills. That's right. The Buffalo Bills, not the New England Patriots. The Buffalo Bills are now the monster at the end of the book. And I've uh, written about this a couple of times, and I write about this in the intro to the book. Our simulation this year came out with DVOA and wins and playoff odds came out clustered around 500 even more conservatively than usual. So this is not going to sound as impressive as you would expect, that we only have Buffalo with 10.2 mean wins. But that's the favorite. They're the number one team. They make the playoffs in 70% of our simulations. Uh, They win the Super Bowl in 10.4% of our simulations. They have the number one projected DVOA, third on offense, fourth on defense, fourth on special teams, and 11th in schedule. 
I mean, whatever holes they had on the roster, they filled at the draft. I don't know how good those players will be. I think in some ways the difference between Buffalo as Super Bowl favorite and Buffalo as just pretty good inconsistent team depends a lot on like Kair Elam at cornerback mm -hmm. and other guys they drafted, uh, James Cook and what they do with their running backs a little bit, but um, mostly Elam. Yeah, let me ask Kale this, because I, I wrote the Bills chapter in the Almanac, and I was like, man, I kind of hate all the moves the Bills made all, all this offseason, like from my analytical background. like these, None of these really make a lot of sense. One, they paid a player on the wrong side of, of 30, big free agent money. Von Miller's 33 years old, mm -hmm. and he would have a dead cap hip of $21.8 if they cut him at 35 years old. Like This is a contract that could go south. Two, they traded up in the first round to draft a non-quarterback, and then they drafted a position of need at cornerback since they lost Levi Wallace in free agency, picking that cornerback, Kyrie Irland, that you mentioned. In the second round, they possibly reached on a running back in James Cook. Backcast doesn't really love James Cook because he didn't get a ton of work. He's really more of a pass-catching specialist. Seems kind of weird with a second-round pick. In the sixth round, they drafted Matt Ariza, a punter. So it's like all of these anti-analytical moves – but then at the end of the chapter, I'm like, yeah, good job, Bills. You're going for it. You, you recognize that you have a short-term window, even though you have Josh Allen, because his cap hits about the spike. And so, Kale, my question is, am I kind of giving a halo effect, good job to the Bills, where if a team like the Jets did this, I would be killing them? Or do you think it's justifiable that they're kind of going all in, even with maybe the best young quarterback asset in the game? I mean, the example you give is perfect because I think it's, I think it's justifiable given situation. I think this is a bit of an all-in move in the sense that, yeah, if the Jets were doing this now off the heels of a, what, four-win, three-win season, yeah, they'd be lambasted. Of course they would. But Buffalo came into this offseason with, you know, the fewest holes on any roster of the NFL, one of the most complete rosters we had seen coming into this offseason. And all of the positions that they've addressed have been direct mm -hmm. uh, or just like, all every every need they've uh every need that they had coming into the offseason they've addressed if how like von miller i think is a massive addition to that defense especially in the front seven they picked up their second corner with Kyrie elam after losing levi wallace i think james cook as a pass catching back is something that they've kind of been missing at least is just an additional weapon to throw in there you're taking a bit of a bet by leaning mostly on Gabriel Davis and Isaiah McKenzie, and I suppose Jameson Crowder as well in there, in terms of the rest of your wide receiver depth below Stephon Diggs. But at this point, the only feasible hole in their roster is what? Offensive line depth? I think they've probably got you know one playable guy beyond the starter, and then it kind of drops off talent-wise. But, I mean, this is this is about as complete a roster as you can get, and I think – especially because uh, Josh Allen's contract hasn't kicked in yet, they can afford to take some of these risks just to play in this win-now mode. I mean, uh, Poyer and Micah Hyde both have contracts coming up. There's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, who's uh, Tredavious White's contract mm -hmm. extension is still yet to kick in, I believe. But they've got a lot of money ready to hit soon. So these are kind of the plays you need to make. You need at least – win one to justify this level of spending and where they're spending this money before the Josh Allen contract kicks in. So I think it's just, it's not, you know, good practice, 
but I think it's justifiable just given where they're at. That's actually where I landed, Kale. And the big like summary stat of this is that since the new rookie salary sale came in in 2011, like the number one rule of analytics might be that if you have an inexpensive quarterback, then like that's the time to, to really benefit and win. And with Allen getting close to that contract extension kicking in, no quarterback that's cost 13% or more of his team's cap has won a Super Bowl since 2011. And only 13% of quarterbacks above 13% have actually made it to the final four. So reached a conference championship game. It's kind of stark. And like, I get that, like, it hasn't been that long that quarterbacks have been getting that big of a piece of the pie. Um, And like, maybe if Brady were taking a little bit less of a discount, that would move the needle a little bit in that direction. But still like these numbers are getting really scary where he was at a 5.6% cap hit last year. He's at 7.9% this year. And then is projected to be at 18% in 2023 and 17.8% in 2024. So like Allen deserves to be the most expensive quarterback, he and Mahomes for sure. But like, that's going to be the most expensive quarterback ever in terms of the percentage of the cap his team is paying. And I'm just like, God, it gets so hard to have the necessary depth with how many injuries teams suffer. And I'm like, God, I kind of, I kind of like that the bills push their chips in and are really putting a lot of weight on this year and next year. Aaron, do you feel that way too? Yeah. I mean, I think that they're going to pay for the Von Miller thing in a couple of years, but Mm. they want to win it all this year. They've got the guy. I mean, I think the big thing they need is consistency. Last year they were really inconsistent. Things like that Jacksonville loss. And Allen was really inconsistent. This came up a couple weeks ago on the show when we did our quarterback tiers show. And we were debating whether you would rather have Josh Allen or Justin Herbert. And what we decided was you would rather have Justin Herbert in the regular season and Josh Allen in the playoffs. (laughs) Because Josh Allen's highs are high, are, are super ridiculously high. Those games he played, those two games he played in the playoffs last year, were so absurdly good, but he was not that guy for most of the regular season. For most of the regular season, he was far below Herbert as far as production. So you know that that high is possible. So Buffalo is good enough. Their roster is good enough overall that Allen doesn't have to be one of the top three quarterbacks in the league for the Bills to win double-digit games and get a high seed in the AFC, maybe even the number one seed in the AFC but they need him to come in the playoffs and have those games. He needs to have the playoff games this year that he had last year. If he does, this team is going to win the Super Bowl. Can I ask a question about that? Do you think that the the like breakout playoff performances there were kind of fluky in their timing? Or do you think this is a thing where like Allen plays the best when the lights are brightest? I bring that up because he was just nails in all of the night games that the Bills played in the regular season Week five, that was a night game, the revenge <laughs> game against the Chiefs. They won uh, 38 to 20. He had 315 yards and three touchdowns. The next week, 353 and three in Tennessee. That was the game where they would have won, but Allen slipped on the on the fourth and one sneak as they were going in for the game-winning touchdown. Week 12 in New Orleans, night game, 31 to six, 260 and four touchdowns. And then week 13 was the crazy weather game against the Patriots where only through 145 and one, but like compared to Mac Jones's 19 passing yards, it was actually like a shockingly impressive performance. I almost feel like is Allen bored by the regular season games at 1 p.m. when they're playing the Jaguars and crew, and it's just okay. like, eh, don't care. The analytics guy in me does not believe <laughs> in the idea that certain players raise their game when the lights are bright. 
But it's an interesting anecdote. It it definitely I, happens. I tend to think that it's I tend to think that it's ra random. Random. Okay. That you know that he had that game against the Patriots. It also I think is maybe the teams he played. The fact is he played well both times they played the Patriots. He played well both times. Mm -hmm. I mean, not counting the ridiculous weather game. He played well both times they played the Chiefs. Maybe he's those defenses are just not set up to match him. Well, are the Jaguars defense set up to match him? I'm not really apparently, sure how that happened. Yes. Josh Allen is apparently set up to match Josh Allen. <laughs> uh, that was my, we didn't any given Sunday on that one. That was, I think maybe one of my favorite pieces we had ever written. Just looking at that game, it, it, it does come down to like, it is the other side of the spectrum in games like that. Cause it did come down to careless play. It did come down to Allen kind of, not getting panicked in a way, but starting to force things they didn't necessarily need to force there. Kind of, you know, getting back into like a bit of backyard football tendency, just trying to turn anything into a play. I think some of that just comes from a level of frustration. Yeah, just I do, I do think a little bit of that is just straight up overlooking an opponent because you're walking into Jacksonville with, you know, one of the better teams in the AFC and you just get caught on an off day, you know, kind of sleeping. I do think, like, while it's, like, not a thing that I would normally think has consistency, and I think, Aaron, you showed me this, too, that, like, variance has basically no correlation coefficient year to year. Right. So, like, by and large, that doesn't really mean anything. But I think the Bills do intentionally hold some of their cards back during the regular season, in particular in letting Allen rush the ball, which is what makes him such an incredible threat in the playoffs when, like, there's really nothing you can do defensively to get an advantage with the numbers. But like in the regular season, I think they don't want Allen to run the ball too much and, and risk getting hurt. And that's another reason why I think the James Cook draft pick makes some sense. I think it's probably why they were going after JD McKissick. They were looking specifically for a running back with more of that receiving skill set and potentially good pass blocking skill set too, where the Bills absolutely live in shotgun, right? And like that's actually in shotgun playing like wide, it's actually hard to get those good running lanes. So like as impressed as I've always been with Devin Singletary and how much he breaks tackles, he's always running into like a really tough situation, especially when he's facing a defensive front. Cause there's just, there's not the blockers. They don't have a tight end in there. Uh, they're running routes or whatever. And so with more of a pass catching back, maybe that's going to lead to a little bit more of, you know, confusion for defenses like offensive versatility they can do more things from shotgun and maybe that's the ticket to win the regular season hey we'll be a little bit better with different types of defensive approaches that we see and then in the playoffs yeah that's when we can unleash allen and let him run the ball 10 times but it's not worth getting him hurt even if you're going to occasionally lose to a jaguars out there yeah it's it's really interesting to look through the bills roster and be like this is the roster where the only question you're asking is where can they least afford to have injuries other than the quarterback position? Because they are so strong everywhere. And I, I mean, I will say, I even think that you mentioned offensive line depth. They signed Greg Van Rotten. That's a guy who started some games in the past for the Jets. They Panthers signed David Barry. That's yep. a guy who started for Tennessee. He had a lot of blown blocks last year, but as your backup, I mean, like I feel like they've got depth at almost every position. They've got starters at, Pretty much every this team is really loaded. Like I think, you know, I do think that our simulation is a little too conservative. You know, it's something that I I need to figure out why it comes out so conservative, and in particular why it came out so conservative this year. 
it's really hard to see a situation where the Bills lose less than 10 games, uh, sorry, win less than 10 games unless they have major injuries. All right. That's the Bills. Anything else you guys want to say about the Bills, defense, special teams? They're good. I don't know. I mean, I think we summed it up nicely, Aaron. Yeah, they're 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 really good. The Bills are really good. There's not All a lot right. to say about a team that's just I don't know. It, it's poking holes in this thing is just a challenge in itself. Like yeah, it, like we said, it's top to bottom one of the most complete rosters in football right now. I think we feel about the Bills like Josh Allen feels about the Bills, which is like let's get to the playoffs and see what happens then. That that's what's really matters for this team. Right. I'd I mean. Say- I- Honestly, the biggest criticism about the Bills is the one that Bills fans don't want to hear, which is if the idea of raising your game in the playoffs isn't real, then the Josh Allen consistency thing is a little bit of a problem. But his highs are so good yeah. that if as long as he's high in the playoffs – I mean, not high, not like phrasing. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as long as he's playing well in the playoffs, this team is going to be tough to beat. Yeah. I think the only anecdotal bit of, uh, you know, anecdotal hole I can poke in this team is it's the Bills have really run on an underdog mindset for most of the Josh Allen McDermott era. And now there are odds on favorite to win the Super Bowl, odds on favorite to win the insanely difficult AFC. They've, you know, officially arrived as the team to beat in the AFC East. There's there's not an underdog take to be found with this team. The pay didn't hurt the Patriots all those years. The Patriots made up underdog takes about themselves for <laughs> years and years when they were the favorites. So I don't think the Bills are going to have a problem doing the same thing. They'll find a way. They'll find a way. All right, that does it for our Football Outsiders 2022 Almanac preview show for today, everybody. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for listening. Please remember to join us every Tuesday and Thursday at 1 o'clock Eastern, YouTube, Twitch Live, uh, afterwards on the Football Outsiders Podcast Network. Uh, On Thursday, we will have Kale back to talk about the two chapters he wrote the New England Patriots, and the New York Jets. And I believe we're going to have Greg Bedard from Boston Sports Journal as our other guest on Thursday. Wait and see whether that works out. He's currently on vacation, but I believe that he's set to show up on Thursday. So please come back on Thursday at 1 p.m. to talk about the rest of the AFC East. We will be talking about the Patriots not as favorites. It's a new era, everybody. Again, that's Scott Spratt. That's Kale Clinton. Thank you guys for joining me. I'm Aaron Schatz, Football Outsiders. We will see you guys Thursday. Take care, everyone. Bye.